We all know the weather's awful, and we also probably appreciate that I'm not a weatherman, if you read the emails today. I'm not changing careers to be a weatherman, that's for sure. Uh, the roads are bad, but thank you for being here, and hopefully as we discuss our topic this morning, you'll take it in the, the manner in which it's offered. Somebody told me the other day they never know what I'm going to say when I get up here, and I hope that he meant that in a good way. But I try to tackle topics that maybe aren't talked about as often, or things that require us to think, and I hope as we do that, that you'll think about what we're talking about today, because it's kind of one of those topics that you can chase it all around and be left kind of in a quandary, and that's not what my intention are. My intention is to present it in a way that's clear. And when I titled it, It's No Accident, what I mean by that is that the things we do, and we've heard this a lot of times, have to be intentional. And that's been applied to a lot of things, to child raising and to studying the Bible and any number of things. I want to apply it today to something that's a little broader than that. Second Thessalonians 2 and 15, Paul told them this, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our apostle. Our epistle, I'm sorry. So Paul encouraged them to remember things that he had taught them. Traditions is what he called them, and that can mean a lot of different things. It could mean biblical commands. We want to make those part of our tradition. It could be other traditions as well. But what he pointed out is we've got to remember them and hold on to them. And I want to apply that today to culture. Not our popular culture, but our culture. Here's the definition. You may have seen a lot of them if you've done stuff in the workplace. It includes the social behavior, the institution, the norms of human society. It includes the knowledge, beliefs, arts, laws, customs, capabilities, and habits of individuals in the group. And I want us to think about that, about our group, our congregation. That's the fancy way. Here's some other ways you might think about what culture means. It's our normal operating system. It's just the way that we do things around here. Another way you may think about it, it feels normal when people do these things. It feels odd when you don't do them or other people don't do them. And we've all been in spots. I'm not going to try and draw out examples. But we, always, we know when something just doesn't seem or feel right. People sense that, and it affects the way that we, uh, we have an influence in the way that we live. Another way to think about it, it's the generally accepted way of thinking and acting. Positive peer pressure is another way to think about culture. It's what the group encourages you to do in a good way. And here's what it's not, and I think it, it was ironic that I sent out a list of procedures and things that we talked about, general utility announcements this week. It wasn't planned that way. It just kind of happened that way. Culture is not a set of rules. It's not a, you got to do this, you got to do that. Somebody's watching you, and somebody's going to be the police. Because here's the thing about culture. Culture trumps policy or rules every single time. Somebody said it this way, culture eats policy for breakfast. 
the generally accepted thought process and the way people act and think about things is always going to override any rule. And they're, they're particularly applying this to a workplace, but it's true in the church as well. And here's an example of what I mean by that. As a parent, I remember saying over and over to my kids, be nice to each other. Because for whatever reason, you know, they could find the line in the back seat and they would both get real, or two of them would get real close to the line and try to get in the other one's space and the other one would whine. Or take your pick, all of us that have raised kids. More than one, you know all the things they can do to not be nice to each other. And we preached and preached and preached, be nice to each other. That's the rule. But guess what the culture is? If mom and dad are regularly snide or short or rude or mean to each other, what do you think the kids are really going to do? They're going to follow the example or the culture that's within their family, and they're going to do that, not what the rule says. And so maybe that gives you an idea what I'm talking about when I talk about culture. Our generally accepted way of doing things that it's really important. Even though you can't necessarily write it down, you can't necessarily spell it out word for word, but it's important. And it's important that we keep it positive. And, and this lesson isn't in regards to, I think, something's negative, because I really don't. A lot of times you've heard it said, we've got a really good thing going, and we want to keep that really good thing going. And I spend a lot of time, I'm not sure what made me this way, thinking about what things are going to be like 20 years from now. And, and I don't really think about that in a dreadful way, that, oh, I'm probably not going to be here, I'm going to be way less active than I am now, and there's going to be a lot of people that are here now that aren't here then. I like to think about that because between now and 20 years from now, what things need to happen for us to get where we want to be in 20 years so that what's a good thing now is a good thing then. And, and I'm not saying things won't change, because they will. It'll be different people, different times. But if we don't think about it, and we just wake up expecting it to happen by accident in 20 years, it'll be an accident if it happens. And we need to be much sure than it being an accident that this good thing keeps going. What are some ways we can keep a positive culture? Well, I think one is teaching about it. That's what I'm trying to do today. It's what we hear a lot about some other things that are maybe more difficult. It's easy to talk about the positive things, the things we need to do to keep the church headed in the right direction, the things we need to do to keep our lives headed in the right direction, how we can prioritize our life and the things that we do to draw us closer to God. Self-awareness is just as critical and just as important, but it's a lot harder to teach about. It's a lot harder to do. Encouragement is another way that we can keep a positive culture moving forward. And kind of on the other side, sometimes that those things don't work. We can help each other with blind spots. And when we do all those things with the right attitude, it helps a positive culture stay positive. I don't think we can say enough times how important teaching is. But teaching is way more than just somebody standing up here and saying things or reading the Bible. It takes all of us being active and listening, but it also takes us processing it and making application to our lives and teaching our children and the people around us. And so when Proverbs 22 and 6 
says, train up a child in the way that he should go. When he's old, he will not depart from it. It's not saying your child's never going to be a sinner, never commit a sin if you do it right. I think for a lot of years I read it that way, that somehow I could be as perfect enough parent, how crazy is that, that any of us could be, that my kids aren't going to make mistakes, that I'm going to turn them into some kind of robot that's going to automatically do everything right. Well, we know really that what train means is you're trying to get them in the habit in lots of ways of doing the right thing. Training means something much broader than just bringing them to church. It's training them about life. It's training them about practical application of Scripture in their life. But the truth is, we're teaching them our culture in this context. We're teaching them the right way to act. How do you interact with people? How do you bring the Scriptures to life? That's for children, but all of us that are adults and thinking... We need to remember things as well. 1 Corinthians 11 and 2. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions as I delivered them to you. We all have a job to remember the traditions. And, and I'm not drawing a hard line. We'll talk about it a little bit between things that are optional and things that are commands. We don't have the option to change commands. And, and hopefully as we go through, you'll see what I'm talking about. There are things that we do that we need to remember. Nehemiah 8 and 8 says, so they read distinctly from the book, the law of God. And, and here's what's important about teaching, I think, that draws the difference between me just reading scriptures or somebody teaching and just reading scriptures is they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Part of teaching is giving people the sense, getting people to think and make application. Reading so many words is the, is the foundation, but giving the sense of what it really means and how to incorporate and use that, that's really what teaching is about. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You may not ever spend time in the pulpit. Ladies, you never will. Some men never will. Not everybody's meant to be a public teacher, but all of us are teachers to our kids and to our family to our neighbors, to people that we work with. And we may not consider ourselves that, but helping them understand is a big part of teaching. And we've got to do that as a congregation and as, as individuals if we want to keep the good things going that we've got going. Self-awareness is another thing we've got to do. Nobody can do it for us. We've got to be aware about ourselves and and, and here's the scripture I want to read about. It's not exactly talking about broad topics. It's talking about being in the faith. But the scripture says it over and over again. And it says it three times in this passage in three different ways. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the truth. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? What that's saying to me over and over here and in other places, we've got to spend time looking at ourselves and trying to know ourselves. We're going to talk about when that doesn't happen because we can't all know ourselves perfectly. None of us do. But we've got to make an effort at it. Knowing ourselves and our personality and our way we approach life and see is that measuring up. Are we following and doing the right things? And, and 
I wrote it this way. It's a command from God to examine ourselves. You don't really have an option. It's an obligation you have to God to examine yourself. And everybody would say, well, I do that when I partake of the Lord's Supper, and I hope I, I do. I try to. I hope we all do. We had you know, a really good lesson about that a few weeks ago. But it's broader than just that one time about that one thing. We've got to know ourselves and examine ourselves. We have an obligation to see, are we adding to the positive culture? We would not, none of us probably would say, well, I don't, I don't, I don't need to know myself. <laughs> but here are ways that we say it when we don't really want to get engaged in a positive culture. Well, I just don't have tact. I can't really do that because I'll say the wrong thing. Or maybe I just act like a bull in a china shop and run over people. Uh. Or maybe we go the other way and say, well, I'm just too awkward. I can't really help in some of the ways we're going to talk about here in a minute because it makes me feel weird or it makes me feel awkward. All those really are excuses saying that I don't have to look at myself and change. And that really goes against the heart of what Christianity is about. Christianity is seeing what the standard is, God's standard, examining ourselves and then changing to meet that standard. It's not making excuses for the way we want to act or the way we want to be. Sometimes self-awareness can be supplemented with encouragement. Encourage people to do the right thing. Encourage people. Acts 11 and 23, we see the word encouragement a few times in the Bible. He came and when he had came and seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them that with the purpose, encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. We all understand the need for encouragement. Giving people a pat on the back is one thing, but sometimes it's a lot deeper than that. It's more than just glued to see you. There's other things that can be done, but encouraging people to be part of a good culture uh, is extremely important. Sometimes it's more than just a pat on the back or a slap on the back, like you might think about uh, a football player that dropped a pass or something and you tell them it'll be all right. Exhortation is another word that we see in the Bible. In Hebrews 3 and 13, it says, But exhort one another daily, while it's called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You know, we use this a lot in what I'll call the hardcore, maybe the moral sins. But the devil is really tricky in trying to convince us that we don't matter, that we don't have to get engaged, that we don't have to do a lot of different things, or that I can do what I want to do because that's just me. And we have to help each other see past that. We have to help each other see that we need to be involved in a positive way. And I like this. This is straight out of Strong's. The word exhort, you can give a lot of different synonyms for it. But I like the, the, uh, the connotation that it gives when you read the Strong's definition. It means to call to one side. To me, it gives more of a, uh, an idea of being a mentor or being a friend or really caring for someone, trying to help them along life's way. Exhortation isn't getting on to somebody. It's not even just a pat on the back and say, I hope things get better. It really is bringing someone alongside of you so that you can develop a relationship with them, so that they can be uh, built up to do it on their own. 
The fourth thing that we need to help each other with are blind spots. And you hear this term a lot as well. Luke 6 and 39, Jesus talked about it. He said he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall in the ditch? We understand that we need each other. We don't, even the most self-aware person can't see what they don't know or what they can't see. And we need each other to help us see that. The flip side of that is we have to be willing to let people help us with our blind spots. And that can be harder to do because none of us, we get strong-willed or get stubborn. We think everybody else has blind spots, but I really don't. And the fact of the matter is we all do. That's the reason they're called blind spots. And here's what's ironic about it. Think there's several people in the congregation, some here, some at home. A lot of them aren't here at night because they can't see. But I know people that take vitamins for their eyesight to prevent blindness early on. I know people, as painful as it seems like it would be, it just almost makes me shudder, get shots in their eyes (laughs) to keep from going blind. Think of the effort we spend not getting physically blind and the pain that we go through to not be physically blind. And if we sometimes would use just a small amount of effort or take it in the positive way, how much more help being helped to not be spiritually blind can be. And so here's some examples that have happened. This is probably from the last four or five weeks as I went through some of the sermon topics. Things that have added that, that are part of our culture. Now, All of our culture should be how we apply God's commands. So is it a command to be generous? God commands us to be generous, and here's what I mean by that. We had a good good sermon on generosity last week, but guess what? There's a lot of ways to be generous. We've got to be aware that generosity has been taught about. We've got to examine ourselves. We've got to be aware, am I really being generous? Is, and, and here's how you do that. My, uh, is my talk in my head, man, I'm so busy, I just don't have time to do anything. I'm so busy, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. Or is it, man, I haven't seen so-and-so. I wonder, oh yeah, they're sick. Let me just send them a text. Or, hey, maybe they need a visit. Hey, maybe they need some food. There's any number of things that the culture here says look out for each other we want to make sure that kids that are two learn that at the level that they can learn it people that are new to the congregation see it and know how to emulate that and build the good uh, build the good culture some other topics that have, have come up following your shepherds pride conflict resolution love your neighbor You know, following the leadership of the elders is part of the culture here. And the reason, part of the reason why is there's been elders at this congregation since the very beginning. And we're used to it, just what you do. Biblically, that's what you're supposed to do, but we've been taught. We teach our children that. We see that. We emulate that when we see it with each other. Guess what? It's not the the case at some congregations. I've seen elders get established that maybe that congregation didn't have a culture of following leadership elders got appointed and yeah the command says follow your follow your shepherds 
but it turned into a train wreck for lots of reasons because that wasn't the culture. And I don't think we have a problem with, with any of these. Again, the point of what I'm trying to get across today is that 15 or 20 years from now, we don't want to wake up one day and we haven't taught each other that. We haven't taught our kids. And in some ways, we haven't developed ourselves, as we'll talk about some other topics. Here's two specific areas about our culture that I want to talk about today, to teach about, to get you to think about specifically. We've kind of talked all around it. One is teaching. Teaching, I've talked about it several different times, it's really the cornerstone of how the, the Bible is taught how the Bible is learned, how the, the, the Word of God is spread to other people, how it's incorporated in our lives so that we can draw closer to God, so that we can get the rewards and avoid the punishments that the Bible talks about. I also want to talk a little bit about hospitality. Both of those are commands in the Bible, but there's a lot of judgment and there's a lot of culture that goes into how we implement those things. 2 Timothy 2 and 2 kind of gives us a broad, a broad stroke about teaching and keeping that chain, that link, unbroken. And the things which you have heard from me, among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And he uses the, the masculine, he uses men, but the, the same is true for women. The things that you teach, you've got to be sure and teach other people so they can teach other people. I think about the analogy that I use is a chain link. It's, it leads from one to the next to the next. If that chain gets broken, it's really hard to put it back together. You know, our use of multiple teachers isn't really a custom. It's, it's a custom because that's what we do, but it's a command from God. So that and the, the topics that we teach, that's not really what I'm talking about. But the, the way we develop teachers has changed over the years, and it's different in different congregations. How old's Jay? 78, give or take a 77. He is not the same teacher. He didn't wake up and be a teacher with the skills and knowledge and experience he has at 78 that he had when he was 25 or 29. She's not here, so I'll use her. She'll probably see it on, on YouTube, and I may get scolded for it. I remember some point in time when I was grown, referring back to when Jay first moved here around 1971, 2, 3, 4, 5, somewhere in there. I was 8 or 9. But my mother, referring back to that, said, boy, he'll never make a preacher. <laughs> see, you never know what I might say, do you? <laughs> and the point of that's not to poke fun at Jay. The point of that is for all of us to realize that things just don't happen by accident. Guess how Jay got to be knowledgeable in the scriptures? And guess how Jay got to be a speaker that was, was powerful? He started really small. <laughs> and he learned from people. And he took ava available opportunities. And some of it was just uh, repetition, doing it over and over. And some of it was life experience that he got and he modified things because his life experience has changed and part of our job as elders and part of the tradition that we have is a lot of people teach here 
And the scary thought is that one day we wake up 20 years from now and people have said, oh, well, they've taken care of the teaching for 20 years. I don't need to develop. (laughs) And we wake up in 20 years and there's not people that have put their skills and their effort and their attention to learn to be good teachers. You know, historically, for public teaching, Wednesday nights has been one of our training grounds. And it's worship. It's not a matter of it not being worship. But we've got a unique problem here that there are, I was going to look and I did and I keep track of it. There's, there's probably been 60 speakers on Sunday morning over the last five or six years, 60 different. Now the elders probably have the majority of that or do have the majority of that. But there are, there are a lot of speakers here. There's more speakers here than there are members at a lot of congregations that we're familiar with. That's a unique problem. And, and what that is, if we're not careful, what that engenders is, well, I really don't need to develop myself. I was going to hunt for it. I couldn't find it. I've moved too many times. I've got a spiral that's got my first sermon in it somewhere. And I was going to put a picture up there and show you what it looked like. <laughs> it wasn't very good. My mother said it was good. <laughs> but it wasn't very good. And my encouragement to young men, middle-aged men, their parents, their spouses, is think about where you're going to be 20 years from now. To compare yourself to someone who's been doing it like Jay for 50 years isn't really an appropriate comparison. Think about where you want to be and how much the church is going to need you and how you're not just going to wake up one day and have the skill. What are you doing to prepare for that? Wednesday nights is one way. I've been in charge of a Wednesday night. People have been in charge of a lot of Wednesday nights. And we all say at some point, man, no, everybody says no. And, and here's kind of my suggestion for that. Not everybody's a public teacher. But all, but all 13 to 15-year-old boys don't know that. I remember throwing a fit and crying <laughs> the first time somebody was going to make me lead a song. I was probably eight or nine, and we were having a singing one afternoon, and I was not going to get up there no matter what. <laughs> and I didn't. But then eventually I did, for I don't know what changed. I, I know I didn't go home and get a whipping. <laughs> but it's a blend of encouragement and pressure from parents to make sure that your, your sons aren't doing it just because they don't want to. It's also not trying to make them into something that they're not as they mature. And that takes a lot of, a lot of uh, judgment. It takes knowing your kids. It t- takes teaching them. But my encouragement is if you're on a Wednesday night and you're given the opportunity to be in front of the crowd, push yourself. Whether that's reading. If you don't want to be a speaker, read a scripture. Talk to the person in charge and say, no, I don't want to speak, but I would read X, Y, Z. Or I would lead a prayer. Those things seem minor. And it seems like with... You know, it's a a slim crowd. I know hundreds of churches that would kill to have this many people on a good day. We think that it's not a problem, and it's not today. But we don't want to wake up in 20 years and have just let things happen by chance. And we don't have good teaching. We don't have good, not just public teaching, but private teaching. Sometimes that's, that's slipped through the cracks because it's not obvious and well known. But if you do a lot of private teaching, it's in not, not in your best interest. Maybe in your best interest, 
I've said it. I've heard it said by people that are really good at it. If I take somebody with me, it just muddies up the water. And somebody messed it up one time, I'm not taking anybody ever again. <laughs> That's a very short-sighted view. It's important to teach people how to do private teaching. It's important to teach people how to help other people. Teaching is key to leadership. The, the natural outcome of good teachers who do things to develop their ability to teach and help other people is that leadership skills get developed. What you really don't want to do is wake up in 20 or 30 years and the skills haven't been developed for leaders. And so I think all of these things are happening. I've said before, I've got a five-year or 10-year rotation of things I think need to be on our minds periodically because we miss generations of, of teenagers particularly that five years ago they might have been 10 or, or 12 and things really didn't mean anything to them. Now they're 17 or 18 and they're going to be gone before they hear it again. It's to realize you've got a definite responsibility to add to things, to not let things slip. And you are important and guess what? The church relies on you. It may not seem like it today, but you've got to spend effort developing your skill. There's no, I don't know if there, I've got a slide for it, but there really is, oh yeah, I do. There's no substitute for your desire to be a good teacher or the effort and patience or endurance that it takes to be a good teacher. It's unique here is you may not be on the, on the floor publicly and, in this pulpit but a few times a year sometimes more than a year it's important that you take opportunities that are given to you that you find opportunities in other small congregations that you do things teaching in your home that as a teenager you take advantage of other opportunities that maybe aren't in the church that develop your teaching skill there's 4-H and FFA and I'm not plugging necessarily any of those things but Teaching is a skill that you develop. Not everybody is a teacher, but most of us teach at some level. We teach our kids. We need people to be good teachers, and just once a year in the pulpit isn't enough, even over 20 years, to be able to do that. So take advantage of opportunities you have and make opportunities. So teaching is not an option. How we teach or how we develop ourselves, we've got a culture of developing and encouraging good speakers. That's what we want to keep going. We don't want to wake up one day and that's not available. Or we've got to make up lost ground. Hospitality is another area. I think we've got a lot of good things going on. Those don't happen just by accident. I want to talk about three particular areas. Greeting people, eating together, visiting shut-ins, and then just some general things. That are, some of them are cultural and how we do things. There's a lot of ways to fulfill the biblical command of hospitality. And here are some that we do and why we do them. Greeting people. It seems so, so small. I remember a time, and, and as a kid, I, you, can't, you have a skewed view of what, you just know kind of your little spot. But I remember a time when this congregation was viewed by other congregations as being very cliquish, not unfriendly to people necessarily, not outwardly not liking visitors, but worried more about seeing my friends than they were about welcoming people from the outside. 
just the way we, we, we just kind of became known for that. Proverbs 18.24 says this, A man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Now, I don't think that's the culture here anymore. I think that's a direct quote, so it's not my grammar necessarily. Here's a text that I got. Thank you for the warm welcoming. I appreciated that. It wasn't something that I rehearsed or went and got a bunch of people to welcome someone. That's our culture. People found a visitor and made them feel welcome. And guess what? He'll be back. Guess what? Before long, he'll be the one welcoming other people. That's how we want to, to, to be. Being friendly is it's a biblical command, but it's a cultural thing. That if somehow I excuse myself and say, well, that makes me feel weird, or I would rather talk to my friends, and not outwardly you know, show partiality and not want to look at someone because they dress different or they don't belong, but I'm just indifferent to people that are coming, that's not fair. That's not a biblical command. We're not showing hospitality. So greeting people, and I'm not saying 47 people need to attack the person at the door. I think we all get the idea. That's a, that's a learned behavior. We teach our kids at some level. Not that they got to do it every single time, but we want to make sure that they learn that, that we learn that, that the positive peer pressure is to greet people and make people feel welcome. That's our culture. Potlucks are another way we try to extend hospitality to each other. You know, you don't read about a potluck in the Bible anywhere. <laughs> it's an optional thing. It's something we do. It's a tradition that we've done for many years. Uh, it's a good way to get to know each other on a different level. Here's what I would encourage you on a potluck. It's the same as a, as a greeting of, of uh, visitors. But if you are like most people, you have a normal crowd. It might be your family, your friends that you grew up with. You sit with them every single time at a potluck. I would encourage you to go outside your realm and sit with someone you have never sit with, sat with before. Now, today may not be a good day for that. <laughs> Maybe kind of a scattered, thin crowd, right? Or maybe it's a perfect day for it because your normal crowd may not be here. And the reason I say that, you'll get to know somebody that you don't know otherwise. You'll get to know them. And what's the purpose of eating together besides getting to know someone on a different level? And, and I'm not naive. I was a, most of you know I was a principal for several years. We learn at a very young age we want to be with our group. We had round tables of six or eight in our cafeteria. And we ran into the normal sixth grade mean girl things. <laughs> you can't sit at our table. <laughs> and they would save the chair for the one they wanted. And, and I, I, we don't have that thing going on at all. I'm not trying to. But what I decided I was going to do, and I learned better after that, and what I mean by culture trumps rules, I decided it would be a great idea. I had somebody at the cafeteria that when the eight friends came in together and always sit at the table together, they went to table one, the next one went to the table two, and so by the end of lunch, everybody was sitting at a table they had never sat at before. Boy, it was a really quiet cafeteria that day. <laughs> the idea was good. They needed to meet somebody else and get, get outside of their little group, but maybe that wasn't the way to do it. And what's nice about people with good hearts is we see the benefit of interacting with people that we don't normally do and when reminded of it or encouraged to do otherwise we do it 
And that's my encouragement. To sit with somebody beside your normal crowd. I bet you'll meet somebody at a different level and, and really enjoy it. And I try to figure out how to put this without it being a pet peeve. <laughs> I, uh, I was a deacon for seven years, and it got to be a pet peeve. Because uh, I've told this story to a lot of people. I don't get very aggravated hardly at all, but I was very aggravated a time or two. As it got time to clean up, and there was a group of guys, I'll throw the men under the bus, there's a group of guys sitting there, and it happened several different times, that all their plates were still there, all their cups were still there. It was 30, 40 minutes after everybody else was finished eating, and I was wiping tables down, and I get over there, and they look at me like, why are you bothering us? <laughs> and wouldn't, pick up their, wouldn't even pick up their, their, their cups or their plates for me to wipe off the table, and just giving me a blank stare. And whether that was culture or whether it was me being picky or just being tired that day, I don't know. But, but it's really important for a culture of us to take care of ourselves. It's not the deacon's jobs, and, and they didn't pay me to say this. <laughs> they didn't even ask me to say it. It's not one of the ladies' jobs to clean up after you or your kids. And, and back to the idea that culture trumps rules, nobody's trying to be the fellowship hall police. <laughs> Nobody's trying to look around and see who didn't today so they can get a mark on the chalkboard and get a, you know, get a mark by their name. None of that stuff. The idea is to make us all aware of the culture that we want to present is, and that we want to develop is that people take care of themselves and clean up after themselves. Not that somebody messed up one time. Teaching your kids that kind of behavior goes a long ways and, and I know it wasn't every single time and I know it wasn't burdensome to me those of you that are old will remember we used to have meals together at the shelter house in Broadway Park that's what I remember when I was a kid it was pretty poor facilities even then but guess what it got us together it was on Saturday nights most of the time I remember at four or five six years old walking under my dad's arms while he pushed the broom to clean up at the end you know, he, he didn't wait around. He, he was 25 years old. <laughs> he was young. He, did, he didn't look around for one of the deacons to come sweep up or think it's somebody else's job. And guess what? That bled over to me. And my encouragement is don't, don't make it a burden on your children to clean up after themselves or to do things, but to at least expose them to doing things and looking for ways to help. That's really what our culture is. And that's what makes us way different from a lot of other congregations and a lot of other churches you might could go to in town is there's not a committee or somebody saying you do this and you do that and you go do that. It's a culture of I look for a need, something that needs to be done, and I feel an obligation, and not just an obligation, but a real desire and a want to fill that need. And that should, that should be in every area of our life. Look for ways to help people and just do it don't wait for somebody else to tell me again it's not about a rule or somebody policing you and trying to make you do something if that kind of makes sense in a broader sense of eating together there's something to be said about spending time with each other outside of the assembly uh, we get in our head that we've got to have a big nice house or it has to be expensive and i can't afford it that's not true there's parks restaurants other places to be together and eat together Take advantage of those things and teach your kids the value of being with other Christians. 
Visiting the sick and shut-in. And I'll kind of throw all these in together. Sitting with the sick, food for the sick, all those things. We've got a culture of that. You know, we didn't have, somebody asked if we needed a meal train when Leslie had her knee worked on. And it was like, no, but guess what? Several people, not in, we weren't inundated with more food than we could. People brought things. Nobody made them do it. It was a culture. But it's important that we teach our kids that. We teach and know that that's happening so that other people take part in it. And I want to take particular notice of the word visit. In Matthew 25, Jesus said, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Visit doesn't mean, in this context, go see somebody. It draws to my mind the literal nature of some of the folks that are passed and gone. There was one elderly lady. Leslie was a day out of a hysterectomy. So those of you who have gone through that know how much, how much fun you're having a day after that's happened. And she plopped in in our living room and sat there for two hours. <laughs> visit doesn't necessarily mean go camp out in somebody's living room. We use the word visit if I want to talk to you. But really, the word visit, when you go look it up, in this context, it means to look upon or after in order to see how someone is or to help them or to benefit them. So that could, be, that could be taking a meal. It could be stopping in to visit. It could be any number of things to look out for people's well-being. And so I encourage you, look for ways to do that. Sometimes it's hard to know. People are different. Ask them. If they say come in and visit for a few minutes, you know, the one that's sick should tell them that. If they say it's Better that you don't right now. We should honor that as well. Looking out for each other is a, is a culture that we've got, and we want to continue that. And however many ways you can say it, don't feel weird or awkward doing that. I know grown people that said, or that do say, I can't go see people in the hospital because it makes me feel weird. Or I can't go to a funeral because it makes me feel weird. A lot of different things and maybe it does not everybody's got the same talent not trying to put a stamp on every single person but my encouragement is don't let a sense of being afraid of something you've never done before deter you from doing that it may feel weird the first few times you do it you may take food to me and you get some weird feeling when you see me at the door you know do it enough times that you get past the weirdness or the awkwardness because it makes a culture of people that care for each other and are there for each other when, when things are, are uh, difficult or think people are going through hard times. Other things that, that are easy ways, they're not the only ways that we visit the sick, seeing at nursing homes, things that aren't visiting the sick, but showers, ways of helping young married people, young mothers and, and families, funerals. A lot of that stuff is cultural, but it takes engagement and involvement and teaching people. You know, your, your, first, your child's first exposure to a funeral shouldn't be when they're 25 years old. When they learn about funerals and those are, those are normal parts of life, it helps them deal with it better when they get older. That, that doesn't mean you've got to take them out of everything you're doing and come to every single funeral, but there's ways of teaching these things to our young people and to each other and to newcomers so that they feel like they belong and they feel like they're contributing. Guess what? There may not be showers in 20 years, but there'll still be a need for helping people. They'll, 
the ways those, those are conducted today are different than they were 20 years ago. I mean, who would have ever dreamed you would put an order online and it would just show up at somebody's house in Alaska, as it was for my kids when they had a, a shower here and they didn't have a way to take presents back. So a bunch of stuff just showed up at their house. But people came to see me. You know, there's, there's a million ways to help each other. We just need to be looking for good. Sometimes traditions get in the way of the truth. And that's, I want to spend just a brief minute talking about that. Mark 7, the Pharisees did that. Jesus said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. We have to be careful that our traditions don't get in front of what the Bible says. That they don't contradict what the Bible says. When they need to be changed, doesn't mean that we don't need to be patient and respectful. We do. But we do need to, to, to make sure we do things the right way. Jeremiah 6 and 16. Thus says the Lord, stand in the ways and seas and ask for the old paths, what the good way is and walk in it. Then you will find rest for your souls. But they said, we will not walk in it. A spirit of cooperation and understanding always goes a lot further than people raising up and, and raising cane because they don't like the way things are done. So ask questions, communicate with each other. It's no accident that the church and the way we treat each other, the way things happened, have gotten where they're at today. Whether it's teaching or the hospitality or any number of other things. It was intentional. Somebody taught somebody and other people learned. And we all tried to grow together. It takes a desire from all of us to do the things that make a great culture. We've got it. I applaud everybody for that. And let's do whatever we can to keep it going. Do the things that, make, uh, that will make us successful, not just now, but many years into the future. That concludes my thoughts for today. Thank you for being here. If there's some way that the church could assist you, if you need to be baptized, or if you would like to pray as a church for some reason, please come while we stand and sing the invitation song.